seated. You can turn with me your Bibles to the book of 2 John. Second John, First John, Second John, Third John, Jude, and Revelation. So Second John, we're going to look at verses four through six this morning, uh, but I will read the entire book. So we will begin reading at verse one. We'll see a familiar exhortation. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. Now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you've heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we, uh, which we, things we worked for, but that we receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful that in a world filled with antichrists and deceivers, we are thankful we can be steadied and encouraged by your word. So often, O oh Lord, we ourselves can be uh, captivated by things that are not found in the scriptures. We can be captivated by things that are not central uh, to the word of God or central to the church, but we ask and pray that you'd remind us, that you would encourage us, that you would steady us in the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do not need a new gospel, but we're thankful for that ancient one. We're thankful for that in Christ Jesus, there is salvation, even in the one who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And we're also thankful, O Lord, in a world filled with uh, uncertainty as we face difficult circumstances, we are thankful for the commandments that you give to us that help give us clarity and help give us a steadiness as well as we walk this world. We might not know what tomorrow brings, but we know what you've asked us to do as your people. So thank you for that. Thank you for what you've given. Thank you for what you have revealed. And thank you that even here in 2 John, we can be reminded of the truth, be reminded of walking in the truth, and be reminded of walking in love. And so we ask and pray that we, your people, would be a people of the truth, and that we, your people, wouldn't just know the truth, but that we would walk in the truth, that we would love you, and that we would love one another. We confess, O oh Lord, we have not done this as we ought. We have not done this as we should. But we ask and pray that you would uh, speak to us this morning. We pray that you would strengthen your sheep. We pray that you would correct your sheep. 
We pray that you would comfort your sheep, and we do pray that you would save your sheep. So we pray that you would give us illumination by your spirit to understand what we need to understand today. And thank you for your word that it does go forth and is glorified. It does go forth and run swiftly. And we pray that it would do so this morning in our midst that you would be with us. So we pray that you would strengthen your saints. We pray that you would save sinners. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, after I graduated high school, I started an electrical apprenticeship. And a couple months into that, I had a bit, of a, a bit of an epiphany, or perhaps a bit of a paralyzing epiphany. And I thought to myself, is this all there is? Am I going to be an electrical apprentice or an electrician for the rest of my life? And it made me appreciate something that I never thought I would appreciate, and that was school. And I appreciated the ebbs and flows in school. There was a semester, then there was summer. There was this anticipation of something new. We always like something new. We always like something that is going to be different. We struggle with this idea of doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. But there is something comforting about the mundane. There is something comforting about the everyday. And sometimes, even in the life of the church, even in the life of God's people, we can grow a bit restless with the status quo. We can go restless in our own, pl in our own place in the church and grow restless in our Christian life. And so when that happens, it's not surprising we may start to look for something new. And so John's reminder here in verses 4 through 6 is to temper that sort of thinking. We don't need something new that which we have heard from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which has been passed down, that's something that we know. And we need to hear that thing that we know over and over again, lest we be caught or captivated by something that is new. Because there were men who were threatening the church to whom John is writing, who taught something new. They taught a gospel that was a new gospel. They taught a gospel that was not the gospel at all. They taught a new Christ that was not the Christ we see in the scriptures. And so John is writing in 2 John to remind his hearers that they need to live in the truth, they need to hold fast to the truth, that they need to live uh, and out, see that outworking of the truth in love in light of the reality of deceivers who might be bringing something new. And so he's writing to encourage. This letter is filled with a lot of encouragement. Now, there is some warning as well, but it is filled with a lot of encouragement, with truth, with love, and knowing someone by their truth and their love. And the problem that I think we can glean from these verses is the problem when we don't hold fast to the thing that is tried and true. The gospel is what saves. We don't need to go looking for salvation in any other than Christ Jesus. The Word of God tells us how we ought to live and how we ought to grow. We don't need to add to that very thing. Now, something new isn't necessarily sinful. Some things that are new are very sinful. But those new things can distract us and detract from the, the most important things and the main things in life. And certainly we see that those antichrists were a major threat to the church to whom John is writing. And so he writes to encourage them in verses 4 through 6. The Apostle John rejoices. He has heard that they walk in the truth. And based upon what he has heard, he then exhorts them to continue to walk in the truth. So he rejoices that and now pleads with the church to continue to walk 
in the truth. That is the main exhortation in this book, to walk in love, to walk according to the standard of the truth. So John is excited. He rejoices by what he hears. But based upon what he's heard, now he then goes to tell them, continue to do that very thing. It is a familiar exhortation that grounds the people of God. And so we'll look at this familiar exhortation under two headings this morning. First of all, we will see the joy of walking in the truth in verse 4. And the joy of walking in the truth in verse 4. And then we will see the steadiness of walking in the truth in verses 5 and 6. So joy and steadiness. Those are the two main operative words, the main points, the joy of walking in the truth and the steadiness of walking in the truth. So let's first look at the joy of walking in the truth in verse 4. Now, contextually, last time we saw the greeting. We saw how we see this one who is the elder. It is John the Apostle, perhaps showing his age, but also demonstrating his authority as well. He, was an, he is or was an officer and in many ways still is an officer of the universal church. Remember, the universal church is the church throughout all the ages or the, the uh, elect throughout all the ages, all the people of God. And then there are local churches, those who are make up local bodies. Surrey Reformed is a local church. There are officers of local churches and officers of the universal church. And so the higher office subsumes the lower office. So he has authority, not just over the whole church, but also over local churches as well. So he writes to encourage the elect lady and her children, which I think refers to the church, a local church, and her members. The lady refers to the church, and the children refer to the members who make up that church. And as we saw in that greeting, the word truth is used four times. And so the truth is very important to him. And the truth should be very important to us. He says, I write to you, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love according to the standard of the truth. The Bible tells us what love is. The Bible tells us what the truth is, as opposed to falsehood. Now, there are false teachers who are threatening the church, and their false doctrine leads to poor practice. That's why we need to have right doctrine that leads to a right practice. And we see how grace and mercy and peace are given to us, communicated in truth and love by the Father and by the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from above. It comes from our triune God, how he communicates these blessed gifts. He does so by way of truth and love. So then he enters into the body of the letter in verse 4 when he talks about his joy, the joy of walking in the truth. And we see the joy of God's ministers. He says in verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I have found. Now he says something similar in 3 John 3, for I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified. In verse 2 of 3 John, he says, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers, and he rejoices greatly by what he has heard, by what he's heard concerning those people, uh, con uh, concerning the church. And the, something similar is here. So perhaps he heard a report, perhaps he saw it with his own eyes. And what he saw with his own eyes caused his heart to be very warm, caused his heart to rejoice, caused his heart to be very happy. And he has this joy and elation. We go on to see what gives him this joy and elation. And it's the same thing that gives any minister of the, uh, of the gospel joy and elation. 
What makes him happy? What makes him ecstatic? What makes him excited? I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in the truth. He's heard about what's going on in that church. He's seen what's going on in that church. And so he writes to encourage them. My heart is warm. I'm thrilled with what I'm hearing. And I'm hearing that you guys are walking in the truth. Now, one thing that the Bible clearly says is some of them are walking in the truth. Now, some commentators say perhaps the implication could be some are not. Some are not walking in the truth. Perhaps some were allured by the false teachers. They were captivated by what these men had to say. That could be the case. But another commentator points out the fact there is nothing to indicate that members weren't walking in the truth. Perhaps it's just some members that he saw, just some members that he observed. Maybe he didn't have time to see all the members and what they are doing. So it might imply that some members are not walking in the truth, but his main emphasis seems to be is that I heard of some of you walking in the truth. And the ones that I heard were walking in the truth gave me great joy. It gave me great encouragement. It gave me great happiness to hear that some of your children, the members, are walking in the truth. Now, this image of the pathway is used often in the scriptures, and it is an apt path or an apt image to describe the Christian life. It is one of walking on the path. That's why uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress uh, is so vivid. It's so applicable because we have to follow the one path. And that path is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are found in him. We are saved by him. Even when we talk about the exhortation here and the life we ought to live in light of what he has done, I'm not going to say we contribute anything to our salvation, but if we are redeemed in Christ, here is the path we must follow. Here is the life we must lead as those who've been redeemed. And as you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you know it's at the beginning that his burden is lifted. He comes to the cross. He is free. He is he's saved. But even as he presses on in the Christian life, he sometimes follow, he go, follows a different path for a moment. And God is pleased to guide him towards the main path once again. Uh, sometimes he goes through the dark, uh, the valley of the shadow of death. He has to go through it. There's a, there are lions that, that are meant to scare. And so you have to keep pressing on in faith. It is a life of faith. The Christian life is one of a journey. It is one of a pathway which is followed in the truth, the truth of the gospel and the truth of what it means to live in light of the gospel. And so he's excited. John is excited to hear that there are children, that there are members walking according to the standard of the truth. They've heard the gospel. They've heard the command to love one another. And he sees it. He sees their fruit. He sees the outworking of that in their lives. And he is writing to encourage them, to uplift them, to help them press on in these very things. Now, the implication seems to be is that there is a path that is according to falsehood. And as you read Pilgrim's Progress, you see men go down different paths and they go down the path of falsehood. And the distinguishing thing is what does the word of God say? What does the word of truth say concerning Jesus Christ? That is very clear and important with the Christological heresy that we see in verse 7. But also how do we live in light of that truth? What is the standard? Brethren, the doctrine of Christian liberty teaches us that we are free in Christ Jesus, but that doesn't mean we live any way we want to. 
We live according to the standard of God's word. We live according to what the scriptures say. License is an abuse of liberty. Living any way you want to is an abuse of liberty. Shall we keep on sinning that grace may abound? May it never be. We continue to walk in the truth. Now, if we sin, there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. We confess it, and God will guide us back onto that very pathway. And so it is, according to the truth. He's heard, he's found some that are walking according to the truth. And notice the source and standard comes from God above, the Father above. As we, so John puts himself there, he hears about what has happened, and then he also puts himself within the brethren who are walking on this journey. As we receive commandment from the Father. He needs to walk in the truth as well, and he has received the commandment of the Father, which we will unpack more in verses 5 and 6. But the point is, there is the truth. There is the commandment that stems from the truth, and the authority who is given that is from God Most High. So we need to listen to God. We need to listen to what he has to say. We need to listen to the Father who gave it. Now, the commentators say perhaps this idea of hearing from the Father, could it be when the Father spoke at the transfiguration? What does the Father say? And John is there. He says, hear him. This is my beloved son. Hear him. So everything that Jesus has to say, all the things that he commands, all the things that he says, John has to hear it comes from the Father. Or it could be that it comes from Jesus Christ as well, who is the one who uh, he, him and the Father are one. And so... Both of those go hand in hand, but the source comes from God. And it's the same preposition that we saw in verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace comes from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, the commandments, the life in which we live, comes from God as well. And it comes from the Father. He is the one who has given it. And it is a command in many ways it must be received. It must be believed to some degree. Here's what God says with respect to how I ought to live. We need to trust that and trust what God says, that his ways are better than our ways. Sometimes we hear the commandments and we think, nah, I don't want to do that. We think our way's better. We think this would be better for me. We get drawn in by something new, but we have to be reminded of the things that God has said because they are for our good. And brethren, that is where our joy lies. Our joy lies in being found in Christ Jesus. We cannot deny the fact there is joy when we walk in the truth. Brethren, do you ever have it where you're going through a good stretch in your Christian life and things are feeling pretty good? Thank the Lord for those moments. Thank the Lord for those times. Appreciate those moments because there's going to be a time in your Christian life where that is not the case. There's going to be a time where some sin overtakes us. It's probably because we got a little proud during that one stretch. I'm wonderful. I'm great. I'm not doing this. There's always some sin we don't see, right? But we need to thank the Lord for those times of peace. But when those times of difficulty come, we need to recognize that God is still God. We still put our trust in him. And he's given us clarity with respect to how we ought to live. Solomon does say, the way of the sinner is hard. I mean, as I prayed at the outset, God did make us for happiness, but it's not happiness in the things of the world. It's not happiness in riches. It's not happiness in the things that will pass away. It's ultimately in him. It's ultimately in God. 
that we might have to have happiness with him by dwelling with him and being with him forever, which only comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what gives us joy, brethren, is to know the truth and to walk in the truth. What gives us joy, brethren, is to know Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and be imitators of God and walk in love as Jesus himself loved us and gave himself for us. Knowing the truth brings joy. Walking in the truth brings joy. Sometimes we don't always see it that way. But our joy lies ultimately in Christ and walking in his ways. And if I must say, if I might add as well, what gives the pastor joy is when the people of God walk in the truth. Now, if you weren't walking in the truth, I have to be faithful regardless. And I am more and more convinced, brethren, of the importance of the means of grace and being under them. And what gives me great joy, what warms my heart is when people understand that and grasp that. That warms my heart. What warms my heart, dear brethren, is sitting around the living room with the people of God and asking them, are you growing? I'm starting to ask that, by the way, at pastoral visits. I usually have three questions I ask. That's a fourth one I'm going to start. Are you growing? Are you growing in the things of God? Can you look back upon your life and see any instance? It might not be that obvious all the time. It might not be something that you noticed along the way, but can you look back and see that? That's how the Christian life is. And I tried to illustrate this on Wednesday night. The Christian life is much like eating food. It's much like trying to lose weight or trying to gain muscle. You don't see it the next day unless you ate 8,000 calories that one day. You might see it the next day. But for the most part, our Christian life is one of just just pressing along, just eating what we need to, just pressing along in the things of God. And after a year, then you see it. Then you see what happened. Then you've seen what's occurred. Then you see the change that has happened. And it warms my heart to hear of those things. We all still have struggles, brethren. There's always some blind spot, and we need to ask the Lord to help us see that blind spot, and then to ask him to help us to grow in light of that blind spot. Maybe we're more grouchy, and we need to ask the Lord to help us be less grouchy. Maybe we're irritated by a lot of things, and we need to ask the Lord to help us uh, be less irritated with such things. Maybe we need to be more loving. We need to be more gracious and patient. Patience is a tough one in light of a world where we have everything at our fingertips right away. You just click on Amazon and it comes the next day. I mean, we're being programmed to want things right away. And so we need to ask the Lord to help us. And if we see that, maybe we're not hungering for the word of God as we ought. It doesn't mean you're a wretch and not, a, not, not in Christ Jesus, but maybe we need to ask the Lord to help us hunger for that more. Love for worship, distance or sickness notwithstanding. I understand there's sickness, I understand there's distance, but a love for the worship of God. And all these things ought to encourage our hearts, and they encourage me when I see those very things, when I see people growing in these ways. It gives a pastor joy to see his people walk in the things of God, to walk in the commandments of God, to walk according to what the scriptures say. These things give me joy. These things gave the pastor here joy, John, and certainly it gives us joy when we walk in the truth. So that's the joy of walking in the truth, and there can be joy all around uh, as we walk according to what God has said. But thankfully, we don't just have joy 
as we walk in the truth. We can be thankful that the truth steadies us. The truth keeps us grounded. And so we're going to look now at the steadiness of walking in the truth in verses 5 and 6. What keeps us grounded, what keeps us, uh, what gives us that firm foundation. It is God, it is Christ, and it is Christ who is the firm foundation. And God is the one who will keep us firm in what he has said. And so we see in verses 5 and 6, now John moves from his rejoicing, he now moves to his pleading. Here's what you've done, now I'm going to plead with you. And the thing I'm going to plead with you is the thing you already know. Brother, and that's important in the Christian life. The thing we always need is the thing we already know. The thing we always need is the thing we've heard over and over and over and over again. And we see the antiquity, how old this request is in verse 5. Now I plead with you. He's going to call the lady. I plead with you, lady, remain steadfast. Don't be drawn in by what these false teachers have to say. Don't be drawn in by things that are not that are ex, or that are extra and or false. So we see I plead with you verse 5, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning. This is not a new commandment, but it is an ancient one. It is an old one. Now, we have seen this interplay between new and old already in, sec or in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, John says, probably the same church, probably the, perhaps the same, uh, situ or same uh, overarching occasion with these false teachers. But John says in 1 John 2, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but it's an old one, that which you've had from the beginning. Now, I do think there's interplay and from the beginning can mean different things throughout the Johannine uh, epistles, the letters of John. And certainly from the beginning can refer to the message that they heard when they heard it. Certainly from the beginning can refer to the beginning of time. I think what John is saying in 2 John here is the thing that they've heard from John, who heard it from the beginning, who heard from the one who is uh, in the beginning. And so it is something that is old. It is not a new commandment, but an old one, which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is, is the one which you heard from the beginning. But then he says in verse 8, again, a new commandment I write to you. So what makes it new? The content is the same, but what makes it new is which covenant one is under. Which thing is true in him, in Christ Jesus? That is the key thing that makes it new. Brethren, the only way we can keep any sort of commandment is because of Christ who first kept the commandments. On our own, by ourselves, we cannot keep them. We need someone else to do it for us. That those who are then changed, those who are then born of God as the children of God, might, not perfectly, then live in a way that is pleasing unto him. We live in light of what Christ has done. Which thing is true in him, in Christ, and now in you as well. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. We have this old commandment, but it's new in light of what Christ has done. But the commandment itself is old and it's one that has been passed down, which is what John is saying in 2 John. I write uh, not as though I wrote a new commandment. Not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but one which we have had from the beginning. And he goes on to say what that commandment is. Love one another. That's the commandment. That is God's will for our life. That we love God 
and love one another. What is the end of the matter? To fear God and keep his commandments. That is what God has called us to do. And so what is love, according to what we see here, is defined by what we have received. What is love? How is it defined? It's as God has defined it. And we go on to see the essence of this request, that we love one another in verse 6. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. What does it mean to love one another, brethren? It means to walk according to God's commandments. That is how we love one another. This is not new in our Johannine series. This is not new based upon what we saw in 1 John. This is not new based upon what Jesus has said in the upper room discourse in John 13 and John 15. But just to remind ourselves from 1 John, 1 John 3:11. This interplay between a child of God and the child of the devil. Verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Brethren, the, the command to love one another was written on the heart of man at the beginning of creation. The command to love God was written on the heart of man at the beginning of creation. The problem is we didn't. The problem is Adam didn't. Adam did not love God, and they did not love one another, and Cain certainly did not love his brother, but he hated his brother, and he killed him. We see this connection between the gospel and the outworking of it in 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of, of his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, when we call someone to believe on Christ, it is a command. I exhort anybody who does not know Christ to believe upon him, knowing that only God can work in their hearts to make them willing in the day of his power. But believe on Christ. That is an exhortation. It's not, something you, it's not a work that we do, but a gift to be given that God gives. But I believe he does it. But we must believe. We are the ones who act and believe upon him after our heart has been changed. So we believe on the name of his son and love one another as he gave us commandment. Then he also again says in 1 John 5, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So how then could we define love? Certainly one writer whom I love says that it's a emotion in action. It's a disposition that leads to an action. Another way we could say it is a desire to do good towards our fellow man. But we have to do good according to what God has said. And again, it is defined by the Decalogue. I asked my daughter that this morning. What are the commandments? What does that mean? And she goes, the Ten Commandments. And then she rattles them all off. She's absolutely right. Not just because she's my daughter, because it's also what the Bible says. Romans 13. Turn to Romans 13. Verses 8 through 10. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So how do we love one another? How do we love our fellow man? It's the latter six commandments from five through 10. Honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and don't covet. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Unless you think I'm still out to lunch, turn with me to Galatians 5. Of all the letters to hammer home, if it was the case that the law no longer applies as a pattern for living, wouldn't it be Galatians? I mean, Paul hammers home the importance that our life, our salvation, our righteousness is not by our works of the law, but it's by Christ and what he has done. But if we're found in Christ, the liberty that we have now is to what? It is to keep the law. It is to honor God. Stand fast, therefore, verse 1, in the liberty by which Christ Jesus has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage, namely circumcision. Then in verse 6, jumping down, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Uh, extraordinary law, positive law, man-made law, in this case, as a way of salvation, doesn't avail for anything. But what? Faith working through love. And he goes on to define that in verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, not only to use liberty as an opportunity of, for the flesh, again, no license, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. So love is defined by the law of God. And everything even we read in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not self-seeking, it is not provoked, it does not rejoice in iniquity, it does, but rejoices in the truth. All those things are connected with the commandments of God. I'm going to read an example, use the example of the sixth commandment. When I say the sixth commandment, you all then say, that's you shall not murder. You shall not murder. And I'm sure a lot of us here would say, we have never murdered anyone in our entire life. And that's why I love the Westminster Divines. I've talked often about the Westminster Larger Catechism with respect to the law of God. And they talk about what is required in each commandment and what is forbidden in each commandment. And it's quite exhaustive with what they have to say. And so I'm going to read one. I'll try to go slow. I'll speed up in some spots, but I'll try to slow down. We're just going to do what is required in the sixth commandment. Are you ready for that? What is required in the sixth commandment? How do I not murder my neighbor? Here we go. The duties required in the sixth commandment are all Careful studies and lawful endeavors. Now, just pay attention to this next part, because this is important. To preserve the life of ourselves and others. That is the essence of the sixth commandment. Not just to preserve the life of others, but to preserve our life as well. Interesting. It goes on to say, by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. So yeah, we don't murder anybody, but it starts with the passions. That's what Jesus hammers home, doesn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount? It starts with anger that wells up inside. 
But they go on to talk about other things that are quite fascinating. He goes on to, they go on to say, by just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God. You mean impatience is a violation of the sixth commandment? Interesting, because we can grow angry with the life that we have. Goes on to say, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physic, sleep, labor, and procreation. Oh, sorry, not procreations, recreations, totally different. <laughs> sleep, labor, and recreations. And so what I love about these guys is that they understand man is made up of body and soul. And I must confess, I was recently reading a book on sleep and its importance. And it's just as detrimental if we don't get our sleep. I know there are new babies. I know sometimes people can't get sleep. I get all those things, but sleep is vital for our health. Sleep is vital and important. I get, again, sometimes people can't get their sleep, but sleep is very important for our memory, for our cognitive ability. It is absolutely vital. And I love recreations. Sometimes we need to just decompress, right? with the stresses of life. And so God gives us recreations to enjoy. That all falls under the sixth commandment and also uh, eating good food. By charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness. These are all fruits of the spirit, are fruit of the spirit, aren't they? Kindness, peaceable, mild and courteous speeches and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient, bearing, and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. That's all what is required under the sixth commandment. Now, if you feel a bit of a heavy weight, like how in the world could I do any of those things? That's one of the purposes of the law. It is to weigh us down that we might be uplifted in Christ Jesus. And thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Because no man or woman, we don't discriminate, could ever do all those things that are said there. They could never keep this commandment at all when you read all of those things. So then there's the seventh, and they have another long list of things that are required in the seventh and the eighth, and the ninth, and the tenth, and then first through five as well. Brethren, life, we cannot do anything of our own power. So thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose again, that we might have forgiveness in him, we might be saved in him, but also have the power of the Holy Spirit from him as well. So we're not looking for perfection here, brethren, are we? That's only in Christ. But it does give us a comprehensive look on what it means to love one another according to the sixth commandment. And I'm sure there's one spot or two in there. Let's just pick one of them today. Can I grow in one of those areas? Could I be more patient? Yes. Could I be more forbearing? Yes. I guess those kind of go hand in hand. How about readiness to be reconciled? Are we, are we ready to reconcile with people? Are we willing to forgive? Just think of one or two, and is there one area in which we can grow? Because that is how we love one another and care for one another, or just one way in which we love one another. This is love, that we walk 
according to his commandments. This is the commandment, verse 6, that as you've heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So what is the best remedy against all the allurements of this world? All the things that might captivate us into something new. It's returning back to and continuing in the things we have always, always known. To use that path imagery, we're not supposed to go off the beaten path. There are many others who have made that walk already. That's why I love Christian's story and Christiana and the boys' story, right? There's what Christian has done and then all the family follows after and they highlight this is where dad was. This is where my husband was. In the Christian life, it is that same pathway to that celestial city that we all have to go in that way. It might look a little bit different to some degree in our lives and the moments, but it's the same pathway that we all must face, that we all must endure. It's the valley of the shadow of death, but what that valley might look like to you might be very different, but it's the same valley of the shadow of death. We're not supposed to go off the beaten path, especially when that something new is doctrinally uh, troublesome, when it's heretical, because not all things that are new are not necessarily sinful, uh, they're not necessarily bad, but there are some things that are very bad that we need to watch out for. And another thing I need to say with respect to this thing that is new, I'm not referring to something you've never heard before. <laughs> I'm not referring to something I've never heard before. I'm referring to things that nobody has ever heard before. I mean, brethren, we think we are the arbiter of truth. I've never heard that doctrine before. I get that a lot when we come in, people come in. I've never heard this thing called the regular principle of worship before. That's fine but other people have talked about it for a long time. And so we have to have that humility. There's a difference between, well, I've never heard of that before, versus, you know what, I've never heard of that before. But that doesn't mean that somebody in history hasn't taught it before. We have to have that humility to be able to learn and, and grow. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about things that nobody has ever heard, <laughs> ever heard before. Although heresies have arisen and, you know, they're the same ones throughout the ages that have been dealt with, but it highlights the main things. What are the main things? What's the main focus? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do as the church? What are we supposed to do as the people of God? And those things are absolutely crystal clear. We don't need to grow restless with that. We just need to, uh, we don't need to need something additional, which again may not be wrong, but is the church doing what she's supposed to do and are we doing what we are supposed to do? Is the church bathed in prayer, following the preaching, the sacraments, and church discipline. That is the mark of the church, according to the Belgic Confession, uh, I think Article 21. And so, brethren, are we doing that very thing? And then as the Christian, are we walking in a way that is pleasing unto God? Because all these things do something for us. They steady us. That is the main application. It is not something new. It is something that you've heard from the beginning. What does love actually look like and what exactly are we called to do? And sometimes I get the complaint or the perhaps uh, challenge that perhaps that, well, you're just, what happens if our heart is not into it? It seems to be just duty. And brethren, I get that. I wish my heart was in everything, but I'm a level with you about something. My heart's not in everything. But does that change the fact that we have to do what God asks us to do? You see, an unhealthy response to, well, my heart's not into it, isn't to stop it. It is to still do the duty God has called us to do and ask him to give us a heart for it. 
That is what God has called us to do. We have to do what he says, regardless of how we're feeling. And I'll give you an example. Brethren, sermon prep can be hard. (laughs) If you don't know, uh, you might not understand that, and that's totally okay. But when I come on a Thursday morning, and I start to think through the sermon, sometimes I'm like, how in the world am I going to go through all of this here? But I still have my main thing that I'm supposed to do. I follow what I'm called to. And God is pleased to help me in that very thing because our hearts are not always in it. Because let's be honest, if, our, we, if we're actually honest with ourselves, our hearts are never 100% in anything because we still have remaining corruption. So we must just hold fast to that tried and true command of God to be faithful. To be faithful with what his word says grounded in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We might not know what tomorrow brings, but our marching orders remain the same. And I'm going to go through with different types of people here. If I forgot your specific type, I'm sorry. But here's what some things I was thinking about. For the parents who don't know how their kids will turn out, or if their discipline is doing anything, you know what you're supposed to do? Raise your child and instruct them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Just keep doing what you're doing. That's what we're called to do. And when we fail in that, ask for forgiveness. We must be faithful. For the married couple who might be wondering about their future of their marriage or they have issues with one another, you know what God commands you to do according to Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3? Husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands. That's what he has called you to do. And that's a fifth commandment, by the way, isn't it? That falls under the fifth commandment. That's what God has called you to do, to be faithful. And God will help you, by the way, in all these things. If you're a child of God, God will help you. For the person stuck in a job that they don't like and are wondering how they're going to make ends meet, just be faithful. Work hard. Don't worry about tomorrow, for sufficient is uh, today for its own trouble, as the Lord Jesus says. For the person who is struggling with a pet sin, and perhaps struggling with assurance with that pet sin. You know what you're called to do? First John 1, confess it to Jesus Christ. Confess it to God, and he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness and press on. And when it happens again, confess it again and press on. This one's for me. For the pastor who's pulled by every suggestion about what other churches are doing, I'm to be faithful and devote myself to prayer and preaching. That is what God has called me to do. That is what God, the church of God, needs. Prayer and preaching. There could be a myriad of other things that we could add there. Insert your life. Insert your situation. God has called us to be faithful. And it's the gospel of Christ that steadies us. It's the commandments of God that give us clarity in light of difficult situations. I don't know what tomorrow is supposed to bring. I don't know how I'm going to... Here's what God has called us to do. Here's the life we ought to live. Here are the commandments that steady us and give us the strength that we need in a world filled with uncertainty. It's not what is new that shall steady us. It's what has been spoken since the beginning of the world. That is what gives us clarity. That's what gives us a foundation And it's ultimately grounded in Christ Jesus and what he has done for an undeserving people. And even that gospel message, if you're an unbeliever here today, this message might be new to you, but it is an ancient one. It was first proclaimed in the garden in Genesis 3.15, right at the beginning. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. 
And he, Christ Jesus, is revealed by farther steps in the Old Testament until the second person takes on a human nature. And Jesus Christ then lives, dies, and rises again. We don't need a new gospel. We don't need a new way of salvation. It has only ever been in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you're an unbeliever here today, believe this ancient blessed message that if you believe on Christ Jesus, you shall be saved. It is this gospel that saves. It is this truth about Jesus that brings eternal life. We don't need a novel gospel, but a familiar one. We don't need to wander off the beaten path, but be encouraged, brethren, by a familiar exhortation. Let us pray. Well, Lord our God, please forgive us for the times that we can look to other things than what your word says. And we are thankful that when we do do that and when we come on your Lord's Day and gather, you remind us of uh, what it is that we truly need. And you remind us in your scriptures of what it is that we truly need. And we are thankful for your means of grace by which you cause us to grow, to equip us to live uh, in this world by equipping us to care for one another in our various situations. And we know that we cannot do it in our own strength, but only because of Christ Jesus and what he has done and by the power of the spirit whom indwells us. And so we ask and pray that we would find joy in walking in your ways, find joy in walking in the truth, and that we would be steadied and encouraged by what your word says. Thank you for the pathway that is clear. Thank you for the pathway that is in Christ Jesus as we always look to him. And we pray that we always would. So help us to walk in the truth. Help us to walk in your ways. And thank you again for Christ Jesus who did it perfectly, who kept the law on all its perfection, on all of it in perfection. He kept every jot and tittle of it that we might have forgiveness in him and that we might have a righteousness not our own that is given to us because of him. And so thank you for that blessed gospel. Please strengthen your people today. Please encourage your people today. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please save them with this blessed message. And thank you for the so great salvation that comes in Christ Jesus. Be with us now as we come and partake uh, of the supper, partake uh, of the visible gospel, and thank you that you nourish us in this way. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ.